All right, welcome to the Medicine Podcast. This is Dr. Christopher Hernandez, your host, and today we're going to be discussing malaria. Okay, I decided to cover this topic because we actually had a case of this at our hospital in the mountains of Virginia which reflects the fact that in this age of easy international travel, you can see it just about anywhere. And it's an important topic because malaria is one of the great ongoing infectious scourges of human civilization, up there with tuberculosis and HIV. So if you're a medical professional, you're going to want to know at least the basics about it, and ideally more than that. So let's get going. First of all, what is malaria? Malaria is the name of the infectious disease caused by pathogenic species of plasmodium, a single-celled parasite. There are dozens of species of plasmodium that cause malaria in other animals, but by most accounts there are five species that cause disease in humans, and you'll want to remember the names of all of them. These species are Plasmodium falciparum, Plasmodium vivax, Plasmodium ovale, Plasmodium malariae, and Plasmodium nolisi. I'll talk about the differences between each species in a minute, but for now let's focus on what they all have in common. All are protozoal parasites, that is to say they're single-celled eukaryotes, protozoa, that live inside of a host organism and depend on that organism for its sustenance, parasites. So they're not bacteria, they're not viruses all share an identical life cycle that involves two hosts, the so-called definitive host, which in this case is the mosquito, and the secondary host, which in the case of these primarily human-infecting species, is the human. The disease primarily affects the blood and is known for its cyclical fevers occurring every 48 hours and deadliness. Okay, so now we have a basic feel for the disease. I do want to discuss the life cycle and clinical presentation in more detail, but first let's take a step back and discuss more epidemiology. The U.S. is relatively spared by malaria, with only about 2,000 cases per year. Virtually all of these cases are imported from other countries. Much of the rest of the world, however, is highly affected. If you look at the maps on the CDC website, you'll see that malaria is endemic to the equatorial regions of the Americas, from Mexico down to Peru, Bolivia, Brazil. It also affects nearly the entirety of Africa, sparing only the northernmost countries like Algeria and Egypt. And then it is endemic to almost everything else to the east of northern Africa, by which I mean most of the Arabian Peninsula, most of southern Asia, including India and China, as well as the islands of Indonesia, basically anything equatorial. This equatorial distribution has to do with its vector, which isn't just the mosquito, but specifically the female form of the Anopheles mosquito. The warmer parts of our world tend to have the rainfall that allow the mosquito to breed, as well as the temperatures for the mosquito and the parasite to thrive. Sticking with epidemiology, a nice number to remember is half a million, that's about how many deaths malaria still causes every year. The vast majority, 90% or so of those deaths occur in Africa, but many thousands of deaths are seen in other countries as well, 
And as you might expect of the cases seen in the US, the vast majority, 90% or so, trace back to Africa. Okay, that's enough about epidemiology. Let's get back to transmission and life cycle. The female Anopheles mosquito is the vector and is by far the most common way this disease is transmitted, although technically it is also transmitted by the various other ways blood is shared, for example, blood transfusion, organ transplantation, needle sharing between mother and fetus. But by far the main mode of transmission is the mosquito. So now let's take a minute or two to discuss the life cycle in a little more detail. It is somewhat complex, but I think it's interesting, and there's no way to not be confused by infectious disease terminology like schizont and merozoite and sporagonic and the rest of those words without placing them in the context of the life cycle they describe. So buckle up, here we go. For me, it's easiest to break the life cycle into two halves, the mosquito half and the human half. Then the human half is itself broken into two parts, the liver part and the blood part. If you think of it that way, it's a little easier to process. The sexual portion of the organism's life cycle is known as the sporagonic cycle, and it takes place inside the mosquito. The asexual replication takes place inside the human. Okay, so let's walk through the whole process step by step. Let's begin with a mosquito that's flying around and already has some malaria parasites inside it. These are called sporozoites when they're just sitting in the mosquito, waiting to be injected into a human victim. When that happens, they enter the bloodstream and travel to the liver. The sporozoites infect human liver cells and replicate inside them, forming schizonts, that's S-C-H-I-Z-O-N-T-S. And as far as I can tell, schizonts are just human cells that have been infected and replicated within, so much so that they are ready to burst. Once they do burst, they release a bunch of malaria organisms, which are now referred to as merozoites. These merozoites go to the blood, where they bind to a receptor on the red blood cell and get inside it, infecting it. Once inside, they're suddenly referred to as trophozoites, just to make everything as confusing as possible. So now we've proceeded beyond the liver stage, and we're about to discuss the erythrocytic cycle, or the red blood cell stage. The erythrocytic cycle is more complex than the exoerythrocytic, or liver cycle, because now there are two possible pathways. The first pathway is a pathway of pure replication. The trophozoite matures inside the red blood cell, replicates a bunch of times, and forms a schizont ready to burst, just like in the liver. When the schizont does burst, it releases a bunch of merozoites, which can then go on to infect more red blood cells. So you can see how a few cycles of this could quickly lead to massive parasitemia, where more and more of the victim's blood cells become infected in an exponential pattern. So that's one part of the erythrocytic cycle, and virtually all the pathology seen in malaria, all the clinical manifestations, are due to this part. Then the second pathway, the second thing the trophozoites can do, is mature into gametocytes. These gametocytes are capable of sexual reproduction, of course, by definition, but that doesn't happen in the human or a secondary host. A mosquito has to come along and suck them up 
and only then, inside the stomach of the mosquito, do the gametocytes come together to form a zygote and develop into an oocyst, which then ruptures to release sporozoites that are ready to be injected into the next poor human. That's the sporogonic cycle, and that's why the mosquito is considered the quote-unquote definitive host, because it's the host where sexual reproduction occurs and where the parasitic organism reaches maturity. Despite all the action that takes place inside the human, first in the liver and then in the bloodstream, we're still just the secondary host for malaria. Okay, so that's more than you'll ever really need to know about the malaria life cycle. But it's kind of interesting, and knowing about it does help to make sense of the disease's presentation, as well as some of the differences between the different species. So let's go ahead and discuss those. The main species to remember, the most famous one because it's by far the most deadly, is Plasmodium falciparum. This species is responsible for something like 50% of all cases of malaria, but 99% of all deaths. The other species can be deadly too though, especially Vivax. About Plasmodium vivax and ovale, the most important thing to remember may be the fact that these two species can form hypnozoites during the liver stage of the life cycle. These hypnozoites can lie dormant inside the human host, leading to relapse of infection months or even years after treatment. So anyone infected by these two bugs needs extra treatment for eradication of their hypnozoites. Plasmodium falciparum, as feared and dangerous as it is, does not form hypnozoites, so does not pose that particular extra risk. About Plasmodium nolisi, the main thing I'd have you remember is that this species is confined to Southeast Asia, and the disease it causes is typically relatively mild. Beyond those basic facts, I don't think many of the specific differences between the various species of malaria are that crucial for someone who isn't a pathologist or an infectious disease expert to know. Just be aware that there are lots of subtle ways to distinguish the species under the microscope. The cells infected by falciparum don't have the tiny red dots called Schufner's stippling, for instance, that the other species do. The red blood cells in Vivax and Ovale tend to be larger than normal, while they tend to be normal in size in falciparum. Vivax can have more merozoites per cell than falciparum, which can have more than ovale, and so on and so forth. So those distinctions exist, but we don't really have to memorize them. I think by far the highest yield thing to remember is just that falciparum is the deadly one that causes the most severe complications. Let's move on then to presentation. The exact incubation period varies from species to species, but is roughly two weeks or so in all of them. After that, you typically begin to see nonspecific symptoms, headache, malaise, myalgia, fever. Over time, you can start to see the cyclical fevers for which malaria is famous, a severe paroxysm of chills and rigors and temperatures in the 103 to 106 range every 48 hours or so. This pattern occurs because it takes about 48 hours for that replication cycle that takes place in the red blood cells to occur, and you can get simultaneous rupture and release of organism. Of course, this pretty perfect pattern isn't always seen, especially in falciparum, but when you do see it, it's certainly suspicious for something like malaria, especially with the appropriate travel history. On physical exam, you may see pallor and jaundice secondary to the hemolytic anemia that malaria often causes, 
which again makes sense considering the life cycle. And you can often see hepato or splenomegaly as well. Okay, let's keep moving. The classic way to diagnose this disease is via blood smear. You just look for the organisms under the microscope. If you're hoping to exclude the diagnosis, you'll need to collect several blood samples over the course of 48 hours, because the organism may only be visible during a paroxysm and the associated rupturing of cells. But of course, if the degree of parasitemia is high enough, you won't have any trouble making the diagnosis. When enough cells are infected, it's very obvious that something is up. And in fact, smears are often repeated, and the degree of parasitemia trended over time to make sure the infection is improving with treatment. Management of this disease depends on the species and the severity of illness. If it's a mild illness with one of the weaker pathogens, outpatient treatment is a possibility, even in the U.S. Some treatment options include artemether lumifantrine, proguanil atovaquone, quinine, and doxycycline. If it's falciparum malaria, though, or if the disease is severe, regardless of species, you'll definitely be admitting the patient to the hospital. Falciparum patients can decline very quickly, even if they're looking well, so they need to be closely monitored for complications. I'll talk about what complications you might see in a second, but first let's talk about what makes malaria severe malaria and how to treat it. The WHO publishes a list of criteria, and meeting any one of them makes the malaria quote-unquote severe. The list includes severe anemia, renal impairment, jaundice, acidosis, impaired consciousness, shock, hyperparasitemia, multiple convulsions, pulmonary edema, significant bleeding, and prostration. Each of these has a precise definition, such as a hemoglobin of less than 5 or parasitemia of greater than 10%, and if any of those conditions are met, the malaria is considered severe and warrants more aggressive treatment. That means IV artesanate. That's a high yield point, so I'll say it again. The first line treatment for severe malaria, regardless of species, is IV artesanate. Another option would be quinine dihydrochloride, which might be more available in the short term as IV artesanate isn't stored everywhere and you may have to call the CDC to get it specially shipped to your hospital. All right. We're moving along here. Let's just talk a little bit about complications, prophylaxis, and vaccines, and we'll call it a day. The complications of malaria are basically all attributable to bad blood. The infected erythrocytes cause small infarcts and capillary leakage and ultimately organ dysfunction. One of the most severe complications is renal failure, which used to be seen more often in the setting of treatment with quinine, that treatment may have played a role in causing so-called black water fever, an old name for this severe malaria with associated renal failure. But an even more deadly complication of malaria is cerebral malaria, where increased intracranial pressures can lead to encephalopathy, coma, and often death. Other complications include seizure, DIC, severe hemolytic anemia, pulmonary edema, Basically, most of the things listed on the severe malaria list of criteria, which makes sense, but if you only remember one complication, I'd probably remember cerebral malaria, followed closely by kidney failure. Okay, so this is clearly a pretty bad disease, definitely one that you don't want to get yourself just because you're taking a trip to Africa or something. So let's talk prophylaxis. 
Needless to say, avoiding malaria endemic areas is the easiest way to avoid malaria, but if that's not possible, you'll want to take as many steps as you can to minimize mosquito exposure, use DEET, use bed nets, do whatever you can to avoid mosquitoes, and on top of that, you're going to want to take some prophylactic medications. There are many options, but I'll just mention the highlights of some of the more common ones. Atovaquone proguanil, brand name Malarone, is popular due to its relatively mild and favorable side effect profile, but it's relatively expensive as well. It's taken daily and for one week after the trip is over. Mefloquine is a cheaper option that's only taken weekly, which sounds nice, but there's a catch. It often causes strange dreams, sometimes causes pretty severe anxiety and nightmares and sort of depression, and rarely it does cause full-blown psychosis and or seizures. That's more like 1 in 10,000, but it does happen. If someone's going to develop these effects, it's usually apparent within the first two or three weeks of use. So if you're going to use mefloquine, it may be wise to start it a few weeks before your trip and see how you tolerate it before you go. Okay, next is the well-known antibiotic doxycycline. This can be used for prophylaxis and is also taken daily. You know the common side effects of doxycycline. Photosensitivity is one of them, which can be inconvenient since a lot of the warm places that malaria affects are also the kinds of places you might want to take your shirt off and get a tan. I'll also mention that the medications primaquine and tafenaquine can be used for prophylaxis as well. And about these medications, especially about primaquine, the key clinical pearl to remember is that you've always got to test the patient for G6PD deficiency before starting those meds. These agents are some of the most severe offenders in terms of causing a severe hemolytic anemia in patients with G6PD deficiency. It's also important to realize that, unlike the other meds used to treat malaria, primaquine has activity against those pesky hypnozoites that lie dormant in the liver, and will often be given for several weeks after the infection itself has been treated in order to eradicate the hypnozoites from the liver and thereby, hopefully, prevent a relapse. So any patient with Plasmodium vivax or Plasmodium ovale infection is going to need testing to rule out G6PD deficiency, followed by a long course of primaquine to eradicate those hypnozoites. But that's just a little digression. We were talking about prophylaxis against malaria, and primaquine can be used for that too. Okay, that pretty much brings us to the end of this exciting episode on malaria. About vaccines for malaria, I'll just say that there are quite a number of them out there, mostly in the early stages of development. The most advanced vaccine is known as Mosquirix. Its technical name is RTS, S ASO1. And as far as I can tell, it's not particularly efficacious with mediocre efficacy that quickly wanes over time. The WHO has not recommended its routine use, but they are still supporting clinical trials with it, so I suppose its ultimate usefulness remains to be decided. But there are dozens of other vaccines in the pipeline such as PFSPZ, which is made of irradiated falciparum sporozoites. So just keep an eye on those newspaper headlines. The day may yet come where malaria vaccines become more widely implemented in an effort to take control of this important disease that still kills half a million people every year. All right, that may be all I ever say about malaria on this podcast. 
Except for one more thing, malariotherapy. Back in the early 20th century, patients with advanced syphilis were deliberately infected with malaria so that the resultant fevers would kill the syphilis. Then the malaria could be treated with quinine. This wacky technique was actually quite successful, the most successful example of so-called pyrotherapy in history, if I'm not mistaken, and it won the psychiatrist Dr. Wagner Warreg a Nobel Prize. It's a pretty fascinating little bit of medical history, and Dr. Adam Rodman's excellent Bedside Rounds podcast has an entire episode on this if you want to learn more about it. All right, that's a wrap. As always, please feel free to email me with questions, feedback, or comments at themedicinepodcast at gmail.com. If you like the show, please do leave a rating or a review, or better yet, send a link to the podcast to a friend. All right then, see you next time.